Who the bloody hell's that? Morning, Ange. Oh, Anthony. How are we? I'm really well. How are you? <laughs> Come on in. I will do, thank you. Did that sound staged? Just a little. No, it's fine. fine, yeah. I'm going to embrace the whole lounge pant thing next time I put my University of New Hampshire lounge pants on. You should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to Chapter 89 of the Corona Diaries. Mmm. Mmm. Flem free in 2022. Indeed. Indeed. It's what it's all you hope for. All you hope for is to be phlegm free. <laughs> um, I was just, just <laughs> remarking on the fact that, that Lucy phoned me the other day mm. with some marketing advice. We were just talking about that. About the fact that, you know, if you're new to the podcast, certain bits might be hard to understand. But then I've just realised that every time we start a podcast, we start with a half conversation anyway. Yes, you should explain phlegm free for a kickoff. I should. I should. I don't know if I want to. No, I don't know. I, I, it's just because it's just because I was coughing, and that's what it was. You said you said, "Shall we start phlegm free?" And I said, "Yes, we shouldn't." Yes, which sounds a bit like flambe, doesn't it? Yes, or or phlegm Burke. <laughs> I just thought of phlegm. Flem. <laughs> Clem's phlegm. Clem's anyway, phlegm. We, we should probably edit all this out. No, I think we should leave again. it in. Again. I right. think we should leave it in. Leave it sorry, in. Leave sorry, it in. Clem, there's no, there's no excuse. No, no. Um, we're um, we going to carry on with the live stream questions this week. It's the, the balance of the live stream questions. Um, and we've also got an extra long diary reading. You're going to do one of those things where you virtually do a whole year in one diary reading. Wow. Am I really... Yeah, right, yeah, you're well, gonna well, uh, you're gonna go to Sweden and you're gonna go to Germany, right? Um, um, for two separate little dates, and that's going to be the year, really. Hmm. All right. Well, and I've got quite then. a few questions actually. Um, okay, but we'll see how we get on. Anyway, back to live stream questions. Just a quick reminder: if you've not listened to eighty eight yet and you're listening to eighty nine, well, you're out of sync. So Why none of it's going to make that? sense. Why would you do Why that? Why would you do it? Um, but also we, when we did the Oxford thing, uh, we did a few questions. We did a, we did a little TCD and just as a reminder, TCD, the Corona Diaries, just if you can't work out that acronym, Lucy mentioned that to me as well. Uh Got to start saying the Corona Diaries more than TCD. Anyway, we did a little bit of podcast light kind of thing live. Um, and we had some questions and we had some left over. We did some last week and the balance of this week. So we're going to go straight in with Stu Perry. Stu Perry, uh, you're on a desert island. You can have one song, one album, one book, one film. What would they be? So obviously Apocalypse Now and then the rest. <laughs> I don't know. I would have said Apocalypse Now up until uh, watching Get Back because uh, I've been watching Get Back uh, for the last couple of days, uh, the, the Peter Jackson Beatles re-edit of the Let It Be footage. And uh, I might take that with me because it's it's so life affirming, and and I'm such a massive Beatles fan, um, and it sort of redefines what the Beatles were really, um, because that 
mad, carefree spirit they had in the in the sixties on all the early performances. Uh, I thought had gone away into something far more knitted brow, and 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 what that movie shows is it stayed exactly the same right to the very end, and really makes you wonder why they split up because they seem so much happier mm. than history would have us believe. Um, so I've been watching that, and it's it's really given me a lift in a lot of ways, and it's made me feel a bit guilty as well because I think well we should be a bit more like that in the studio. Um, because, I mean, Lennon just never stopped goofing around at any point. You know, even during the takes, he was goofing around. Um, and I, I like that. And whenever they tried to have a serious conversation about what they were going to do next, it was kind of weird. None of them ever addressed anything. They would just say random things. Uh, Ringo would say nothing. And... Um, George would occasionally say something, but for the most part, uh, Paul and John would would just talk something akin to nonsense. Um, and nothing would ever get decided. And maybe that was their way of refusing things, was to just uh, talk rubbish, you know, in, or, in order to kick the can down the road. But there's a lot of kicking of cans down the road which might be, I'd probably find that frustrating personally. But they, that just seemed to be how they operated. Um, but it was all sort of joyous and really light-hearted. Um, so I felt guilty and I've, I've made a little pledge to myself to be goofier in the studio. Right. I don't think the rest of the band will be thrilled to hear that pledge, but... <laughs> No, no, and they're hearing it at the same time as everybody else's. Um, I think I might, I might make a point of messaging them all and just saying. Well, it, it could be that they've all been watching Get Back at Home and have made silently the same pledge. In which case, it'll be like a bun fight next time mm. we're in there. Well, everybody's going to want to be John, aren't they? Yeah, well, everybody in their right mind would be, yeah. apart from the fact that he, he got shot, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want that. Yeah, yeah. Take that bit out of it. Everybody wants to be John. He stayed young on the positive side. Yeah, there is that. So, and you don't think that that kind of goofiness and kicking the can down the road had anything to do with being the biggest band in the world and clearly a lot of wealth? Uh, no, because I don't. I don't think wealth, from what I've seen of it, it hasn't made that many people goofy. It makes them a bit more uptight on the mm. on the whole. I think the more you've got, the more you've got to lose, and and you worry about losing it more, um, maybe. But they didn't seem worried about. I don't think they seemed even that aware of of the money. Really, um, I, there is a conversation where Paul's saying, "What we're going to do about Billy Preston?" Because you know. He's been he's been coming here every day, and we haven't offered him any money. <laughs> what should we do? We should give him. We should know. We should talk to him. Get our people to talk to his people. Uh -huh. um, but that's the only mention of money in the entire movie, as far as I can see. Uh -huh. um, it's amazing what Billy Preston added to them, mm -hmm. actually, not just musically, but in terms of focusing. I think I think they felt they've all had to focus and get on with it because they've got another person in the room now. 
And that does happen to us if you stick another if you stick another person in the racket club with us you, you know that the 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 sense of focus is really sharpened and we've often pondered the not we've not entirely seriously but we've often pondered getting a couple of getting a couple of you know half a dozen even just two two people <laughs> into the room to to sit cross-legged and listen when we're rehearsing because if they when somebody's there we we sharpen up a lot more we take it a lot more seriously we're all trying i guess we must all be born show-offs and so i think anyone in a band is probably a born show-off whether they admit it or not and and so they they get the shit together a bit quicker if if there's somebody there to watch um, and I think I think Billy Preston had that effect on them. He galvanised them from the moment he he arrived, just because he was a foreign body, but also uh, because it was plain from what you hear him playing that he wasn't sitting there playing; he was listening, and he was giving the songs that he felt they needed. He wasn't just here. I am. I'm going to play. All, I'm going to learn the chords and play all over this. He was he was listening. Um, and uh, that's why it works so well because you've got to listen you know the point of being in in a band because so much of it is improvised you know you're not reading it from dots and lines there isn't some genius who's written it all down and you're just effectively doing as you're told which is what classical music is um, in a band you're um, you're sort of improvising when you're writing and so it's really important that you listen to what everybody else is doing almost more than you're listening to yourself that's that's the sign of of a good musician a good rock musician listens to everyone else anyway there we Any, anyway, what, anyway what was the question not quite sure oh, let me check if me. i was oh if i was on a desert island <laughs> that was it wasn't it <laughs> i'd i'd probably yeah i'd 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 take apocalypse now but if if it wet if it got wet or sank, I'd I'd have a uh, I'd have a copy of of Get Back by Peter Jackson in a in a Tupperware box, in reserve. Um, book. Mm, what would I, I what would I need to read from time to time? I can't. Sorry, um, just to go back, I can't believe in twenty twenty two the only way we think we can keep something dry is in Tupperware. <laughs> well, I'm stuck in the sixties. <laughs> Mine, I think the Tupperware used to leak in the 60s. And then uh, <laughs> then they invented they invented better Tupperware later yes. in the 70s, which didn't leak. Right. And now I can never find the right lid to go with the right box. Oh, so it would all be wet through before it would be wet through before I found a, found a lid that fitted now. Right. There's always a drama, uh, a, a drama display in our kitchen when I'm trying to put something in a Tupperware box. There's a lot of slamming of drawers <laughs> and throwing of bits of plastic across the room. Um, and why the fuck don't any of these lids go with any of these <laughs> fucking boxes? Of, oh, why are they I'm fucking so colour-coded? Pleased. Why haven't we written on them with a Sharpie? What's the matter with it? It takes me hours. Anyway. Um, I'm so pleased that's not just our house. Th- yeah, there's always a lot of drama 
With Tupperware. It doesn't oh, stack, does it? The thing is, you go in for... You get one out, and then you try and get a lid out, and then half of it falls apart, and then you get really angry, and you just grab the whole lot and throw it on the kitchen floor. We have a lot of, of Tupperware sort of jar. Yeah, what, what would you call them? Um, receptacles. Um which which are very, very similar with lids that fit them, but they only fit the one. And so they all look like they would fit each other and none of them do. Mm. And that's what drives me around a twist. Mm. And I uh, keep, keep pleading with Lynetta to throw them all out and just buy some new ones. Uh, and she did. She bought some new ones, but she didn't throw the old ones out. <laughs> oh. So that's just that's just added to the chaos. Oh. Oh. Anyway, back next week for episode two of Tupperware Watch. <laughs> the Tupperware Tupper- Diaries. <laughs> I thought you said Tupperware Wars, did you? Did no, you I didn't, that? but it could be Tupperware Wars. <laughs> it's uh, literally Tupperware. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, sorry, Stu. We're making a terrible uh, job answering your question. Nearly done the movie, though. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for 89. We'll see you next week. As for the book, my goodness, what would I take? Uh, I don't know. I'd probably take War and Peace because uh, mm. there'd be plenty of time for reading it. And I do like Tolstoy. Um Maybe I'm just showing off, saying war and peace, but what would lift me? You'd want to be lifted, really, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want anything philosophical because you'd have plenty of time to do that on your own. Yes. Um, You'd want something that would just lift you and preferably lift you away from being on a desert island. So you'd want something fairly inland. What could that be? Um, I don't know. I really love Le Carre. You know, I mean, maybe it's not the only book I'd want to take, but I would want to take The Night Manager by John Le Carre. That's a great book. It's a good book to return to. And it starts out in Switzerland in the snow with a man being stuck in a wine cellar. And that might be a welcome relief from... uh, the blue horizon and the the sound of the waves and the gulls. Um, maybe that, or maybe the naive and sentimental lover by Le Carre. Um, one of his, I, I think he he really had the human condition sort of nailed. Um, so perhaps that, or perhaps something really goofy. Um, you know, something by Spike Milligan or John Lennon, mm. just to cheer me up. I quite, some, I quite like Woodhouse. I could, I could see me taking a some Woodhouse. R- right, just something you could giggle along yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- well, that kind of a thing. I, 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 what, and, and music. Oh, what would you take? Uh, one song, one album. One song, blimey. Um, I find those I find those questions so impossible because for me, there isn't one song. 
you know, maybe the most important song ever written was Imagine by Lennon. But you wouldn't want to hear that on an island every no. day. You'd tire of it, you, you know, if, it, if that's all you'd got. Is there a song you wouldn't tire of? My goodness. Um, gosh. I don't know, maybe... Um, I don't know. Maybe us and them from uh, Dark Side of the Moon could be a song that I could stand to hear a lot, uh, which might make me think about about the pointlessness and the stupidity of 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 war and and the fact that it's it's not likely to happen to me on a desert Design. island. <laughs> I'm probably <laughs> probably warproof. If nothing else, um, and it's such a beautiful piece of music that um, no, I, I, I mean I couldn't choose one song. Uh, I could take about thirty, I guess, um, which would include "She's Leaving Home" by the Beatles and the Boxer. Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel and um, Unfinished Sympathy by Massive Attack and Life on Mars by Bowie and uh, maybe Black Star by Bowie as well. Um, uh, ching, ching, and, uh, and Lust for Life by Iggy Pop. Um, Fortress Around Your Heart by Sting. Um, so I, I couldn't just choose one, but, but it'd be nice to have quite a few, you know. Addicted to Love, Slave to the Rhythm. The shit I used to listen to by the pool at Oak End. Um, and um, maybe Bonnie don't Bonnie don't live at home. Bonnie don't look Bonnie. I think it's just called Bonnie by um, Prefab Sprout. Oh, that's God, interesting. God, God bless you, kid. By the Blue Nile. That's in, the only reason that's interesting is because I was driving along the other day and Prefab Sprout came on, and I thought we've never mentioned Prefab Sprout in eighty-eight episodes, and yet Have we my not? gut feeling would be that you would be a Prefab Sprout fan. That particular album um, and the one after it, um, what was the album called? Two Wheels Good. Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen. They called it Two Wheels Good in America because. They weren't allowed to call it Steve McQueen. Um, and, uh, Was it Langley, Langley Park to Memphis? Langley Park to Memphis, yeah. The, the one with... Um, King of Rock and oh, Roll. Yeah. Yeah, what was that? I Remember That is on there, isn't it? That's mm. an amazing song. So, yeah, Paddy McAloon, oh, my Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what a great writer, what a great yeah. singer. Yeah. And what a lovely sound his voice always had on their records, particularly particularly those two. With the vocal sound that Thomas Dolby got on um, 
on Steve on that Steve McQueen album and many other guitar sounds are just so wonderful. And I'd need, I'd need, I'd probably need a, a, a track off the Grace album by Jeff Buckley uh, along with me. Maybe. And we've not mentioned Leonard Cohen yet. Yeah, blimey. Um, maybe I'd sneak uh, the Book of Longing in in uh, in the Tupperware box mm. as well as well as the whatever else I'd said. And your dad had amazing taste because Wichita Lyman's got a figure somewhere. Yeah, that would be a way of remembering my old man, wouldn't mm. it? And then I could have. Um, what did my mum really love? She she had some. She got into some mad stuff. Um, maybe maybe you know something by the Kinks. Maybe you really got me. Um, would be good just to loon about two under the moon. Mm. Uh, but choosing one would be it's, it's not. absolutely impossible. Yeah. Sorry, Stu. Sorry, Stu. Um... Um, but it, let's face it, it's a virtually impossible question. But Well, but, if you choose one of anything to take to a desert island, you've got to be comfortable with the notion of completely ruining what it represents to you. Yeah. But, you know, because that it, it would wear itself out no matter what it was. And it would be such a shame to take something that is precious to you and reduce it to something that you hope you would never see again or hear again. <laughs> <laughs> it would be, be awful. be like getting married. <laughs> so, so, Joe Dolce then should up your face. I don't mean it. I don't mean it. Sorry, go on. Joe Dolce should up your face and Jimmy Cooper <laughs> uh, and, and, and anything with Vin Diesel and, and you're probably fine. Brown girl in the ring. La, 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 la. Um, we'll move on from that. Um, but another one that's kind of question-related from Lisa Wetton. Um, and I got to say hello to Lisa Oxford. It was lovely to see her. Um, of all the songs you have written, is there one you'd love to sit, hear someone else sing? Oh, wow. Um, well, we and this widens it, because we've talked a little bit about Marillion and other bands covering, but this yeah. is anything you've written sung by anybody else. Um, hmm. White Paper, sung by Paul Buchanan from the Blue Nile. That would be something to hear. That really would. That's it, really. Hmm? Hi, Lisa. You're right. She was very well in Oxford. Lisa Um, Wetton's lovely. I gave a pause there, just to underscore that. Right, Ian King. If you were not the rock star Steve Hogarth... If me uh, and which, what? Who? If you were not the rock star, oh, Steve Hogarth. Well, I am. I am not the rock star, Steve. <laughs> well, <laughs> kick off. But yes, if yes. I wasn't, which person, past or present, would you like to be, and why? Mm. Ooh, you kind of got to rifle through all the flippant answers first, and, and get try and get to. Who you'd like to have been? Um, hmm. Oh, oh! I don't know. Um, 
you want to come back to that? I've got someone can, who we... you know, someone who did something really, really worthwhile. You know, in, invented penicillin or something. Um, they reckon it was Alexander Fleming, but it probably wasn't. It was probably one of the junior members of his team <laughs> who weren't recognised for it. <laughs> that tends to be how history works. Fleming probably just took the credit because he was, um, you know, he'd been to a posher school or something. But that could be, you know, somebody who did something that 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 benefited the world. Um, one of those people who who invented the polio vaccine, they they uh, they got rid of a lot of misery for a lot of people with a sugar lump. Um, that's incredible. Um, or you know maybe. Um, you know, maybe one of those the, the the guy who played keyboards for the Who and was at the side of stage that nobody ever saw uh, would have been great to be him because you could have just watched that band play every night. You could have watched Keith Moon every night, and you could have watched Pete Townsend every night, um, and just just sort of luxuriated in the in the brilliance and the mania of 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 what they were doing when they were really at their, their height. Um, it's the best band I ever saw. And I've been... I've, somebody sent me a link. Who sent me a link to... Who was it? Someone sent me a link the other day to a, a YouTube link to The Who doing Who Are You? Have you seen that? And, no. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just amazing. Uh, I'll send it to you. Oh. Uh, Keith Moon is just bonkers throughout it um but it's all real it's not a lip sync it's them doing the take in the studio you can tell it's not being mimed i mean they're doing it you know before your very eyes and they're doing it live but it's the record it's incredible um so i'd love to have been the guy that just sat at the side of the stage watching that going on and Maybe playing that organ that goes and uh, won't get fooled again. That'd have been a lot of fun. Uh, I don't know if anybody actually played that or whether they just had it running on a loop. Um, but if someone was playing it, I'd, I wish it had been me, and I wish I could have done that. You know, the side of stage and watched. Um, so any of those people, people who, you know, healed the sick or, or people who watched The Who. Right, okay. I could I could probably have made a pitch for Dickie Bird. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you think about it, Dickie Bird, it, I probably I think he's still alive actually, but lived in Barnsley his whole life, never had to change his, his life particularly, watched some incredible cricket, l- devoted, the cricket audience love him. And he just used to go out every day and watch great cricket. Right, and sort of whisper about it. And just, yeah. Speaking and, of, of, of people who whispered about things, Bob Harris would be quite a good person. Bob to Harris. Been, because he, you name him, he's met him. Uh, yeah. He, he's interviewed them all. Um, and he's probably watched them all play in front of him in that little studio, you know, from from Hendrix to Bowie to Roxy Music, I mean, everybody uh, mm. who was worth looking at 
is uh, and talking to, he probably looked at and spoke to, and he probably did it in such a way that, that they felt really comfortable, unlike some of those showbiz chat show idiots that make musicians feel uncomfortable. Mm. Bob never, I mean, I've, I've met Bob loads of times and he's never made me feel anything other than entirely at ease. Um, so he's, a, he, because you can tell that he loves music and that he respects musicians. And so when you meet someone who is so engaged in what you do, then you, you immediately blossom in front of them, you know, and, you want to tell them all about everything because you know that they'll understand it and you know that it'll mean something to them. But, but occasionally, especially on TV, when you do interviews, you can see that you're talking to somebody uh, for whom what, what you do means nothing to them, doesn't interest them. Um, and they're there interviewing you because that's what they do. They're being paid to interview people who they know nothing about most of the time uh, and who they wouldn't want to know about. And that always makes makes you very uncomfortable. Um, and then you try and, you know, if you're the kind of person well, you're one person or another. You're you're either a Van Morrison type who thinks, well, fuck this lot, I'm off. Or you're someone who who thinks, well, I will try, you know, I will try and impress this person. I will will try and be nice. And you're probably better off just walking off, to be honest, because those people have it too easy for too long. Hmm. Right, right. Bob Harris, I'm with you. I'm with you. What was the question? Can't remember, but Bob <laughs> Harris is a great answer, irrespective of what the question is. It's another good T-shirt, actually. It's another good T-shirt. Um, Mark Lacey, is the one song that when the band came to listen to the final mix, it collectively blew you all away? And in a similar vein, an audience reaction to a song that completely surprised the whole band? Hmm... It's a good question, that, Mark, yeah, actually. that is a good question. There's two. We heard the mix. We're such picky bastards, to be honest, that whenever we first hear a mix... Everybody's just going, oh, that could do with coming up a bit. That could do with going down a bit. Could you dry that up a bit? Could you stick a spin on that? So we're very, very critical. It's very rare that we hear anything and just go, oh, wow. Um, hmm. All of us. I don't even remember. I don't remember everybody being in a room at once listening to a mix mm. going and all unanimously going, that's amazing. I don't, I think I'm struggling to remember that ever happening. Um, I know that we've been really happy with mixes at the end, um, mm. but whether we've just heard one from Cold and gone, oh my, I, t- I tell you what, I tell you what, Maybe, um, you know, I'm, I'm 
dredging through the past. And I do remember a unanimous bloody hell uh, to Mike's mix of... Um, you carry me around that loose change, jingle jangling, bottom of your bag. Power. Hmm. Power. When, because the whole time we were putting power together... Mike was very in the driving seat pushing that along and I wasn't sure and certain members of the band were sort of a bit lukewarm with it and then he played as the mix and we all just took three steps back and went bloody hell that sounds amazing so that one is the one that, that really sticks out as being the one that blew all five of us away at the same time um Going further back, I remember being pretty knocked out when I first... But this was me rather than the whole band. When I first heard Megan's mix of um, Afraid of Sunlight, it blew my socks off. And uh, Runaway as well. I remember um, listening to Megan's mix of Runaway for the first time. Um, I mean, and, and Dave mixed... He mixed Brave at, at Sam West at, at Trevor Horn's place um, because he used to work there and he mixed it in the same room that Slave to the Rhythm was mixed in. I remember being in that room thinking, this is the place, this is the sacred, this is the sacred room where Slave to the Rhythm was mixed. And, and things didn't sound that amazing in there it wasn't a flattering room um but it, but dave mixed brave in there and when i got it home and listened to runaway i remember being really really knocked out by the sound of it mm. but as for the whole band dunno 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 i mean were we all sat, we were all sat in a room for fear as well but I honestly can't remember whether there was one that just went bam. But I do remember mm. perfectly power knocking everyone out. Mm. And what about then an audience reaction to a song that surprised the band? Hmm. Well, you just never know what... what oh, hang on a bit. Hang on a bit. <laughs> I'll stop that. Um, you just never know what... A, crowd are gonna do they sometimes go quiet in the places where you think are going to be major moments and, and then go nuts in the quiet bit you know in, in in the bits you think they won't um don't sell many shows i mean that was the classic uh man that wasn't a song that was just me saying hi <laughs> this is the classic moment at lazenis in um 89 when i first joined the band and i think but but between song three and four or song two and three i said hello i'm new you know i'm new here you might have noticed and thanks for making me feel so welcome and the, the roof went off the place for about three or four minutes and that was incredible and it's, none of us were expecting that for a kickoff so that's remained a precious memory um We've had amazing reactions to this strange engine from time to time over the years. Um, but may, m maybe the release has always gone down better than I thought it would. 
as well. That's I guess we didn't play it for years because we just thought it was a bit straight ahead and no one would like it. But everybody really enjoys that. So we're pleasantly surprised by that. That doesn't mean it, has, it gets the greatest reaction of any song, but you kind of expect something extraordinary to certain songs, you know, to, to Neverland. Mm. And, um, you expect a moment on the end of it, so you're not surprised so much. Um, New Kings, we, we, we played New Kings uh, on a German tour before... I think before we'd even finished, was it before we'd finished the album? It was before the album was out, uh, the Fear album. Uh, we we worked New Kings out and, and played that in Germany, and that went down really, really well. And, of course, Be Hard On Yourself mm. has gone down extremely well in the UK on, on this last tour, better than I'd, I'd, I'd hoped, not better than I expected, because I think it sounds great live, but, but even better than... Even better than I expected. Hmm. I'm, I'm going to, because obviously you've mentioned those two words again that, that always shine with me, so you mentioned the release again, which, by the way, went down very well last week as well when you read the lyric. Um, um, you know, and you know what I'm going to say next, but, I mean, surely... <laughs> You're going to say release the release. I'm going to say release the release, but there's the season's end box set coming up. Ah. There's a perfect moment to actually do it. Right. Well, you should lobby the band because... Well, I'm st- I am doing. No, I'm just, you know... <laughs> I'm just the singer. <laughs> but I don't want to. <laughs> well, you've just said how well it goes down. I lobby them every every day in life. <laughs> you can only run at a wall so many times. Oh, uh, do, it in a, do it in a goofy way it worked for John. Yeah, I'll do it in a goofy way. Do it in a goofy way. I'll dress up. Yeah, I think you could bang the release out <laughs> as, the a, big as, a, as a little bit of... <laughs> A little bit, a little bit of a as, as a thing when the, when the season's end box set comes out. Yeah, well, I'll, all makes sense to me. Right, I'll say it, and then and then when it doesn't happen, you'll know it's not my fault. Right, okay. And I'm just going to say to everybody that's listening, now's the moment. This is the this is the hashtag moment. We've got got to get behind release the release pretty much now. Okay. Yes. Send it to right. the band. Yes. Right. Um, last question, mm. uh, Sarah Golden King. Um, My question is tenuously linked to the hairy toes feet question (laughs) that we had a few episodes back. Thank heavens. (laughs) Which I'm pleased about. I'm pleased that somebody's finally come round to addressing this. because I was hoping we could get back to that at some point. Yes, good. So was I. My first gig was Colston (laughs) Hall in 2007. (laughs) And the first thing I noticed was your footwear. Please, can you confirm or deny that you were wearing a pair of bear claw hairy slippers? No one else seemed to notice, so it may have just been me having a moment. No, I got those. They were by a camper, and they were, uh, they were, they were the strangest shoes. They were made out of like um, that kind of roof felt that you insulate houses in. (laughs) They were like that, uh, and they were like slippers. Um, <laughs> and I thought they were really cool, but I think I was a majority of one. Uh, and and I was I was so thrilled with them that I I wore them on stage on tour. And I've seen photographs, and I'm here to tell you it was a huge mistake. They looked dreadful, uh, but I felt very good about them at the time. And they they were. Um, 
they were sort of roof insulate organic roof insulation carpet slippers um uh, by camper um cuz i quite like camper shoes um and not all of them i mean they do make some horrors um <laughs> you could argue you could argue the hairy slippers were horrid. they didn't have claws sarah um although if i'd thought of claws i might have had some glued on which might have given them a bit of something that they lacked. Um, but one notable memory, I remember being in Oslo doing a promotion trip with Pete Travers, doing interviews. And it had snowed pretty heavily and there was slush all over the pavements and the roads and we were out walking in Oslo and being made out of organic roof insulation, they really soaked up the water. And they were absolutely wet through, and I was my feet were wet and frozen because of these um, these things. And at some point, they started to warm up and dry out later on the same promotional trip. And as they warmed up and began to dry out, uh, things grew on them. You know, you could have grown cress on them. Uh, <laughs> You could have had like a garden on your feet. <laughs> but things, you know, various forms of, of algae and small plants took root on them. And uh, they started to take on a life of their own. And I thought I'd better get rid of them. <laughs> I felt threatened by them. Good question. Good, good question, Matt. Really good question. And I'm really pleased they were a thing. Pete often reminds me, he said, do you remember those shoes you had on in Oslo? <laughs> in the snow <laughs> that spr oh. sprouted vegetation later on. Well, yeah. <laughs> right, let's head off some diary. Um, we've, we've got a bit of Sweden, a bit of Germany. Um, it's quite it's a long all, diary reading, but need. it's going it's to finish the year off because um, it's a relatively short. Uh, in the book, it's 88, doesn't last very long. Um, oh, I must have been pages. distracted. Either, you know, either been a year of trauma or a year of complete joy to the yeah. point that I didn't want to write anything down. Well, Sweden, Germany, that'll finish us off and then we'll have a quick wrap at the end uh, and I'll, I'll leave it with you. Okay, here it comes. Let me take you to Göteborg. Saturday, 19th of September. Home, Gothenburg. I had to do an internet chat to the USA at three o'clock in the morning. I also had to be up at six o'clock to be ready for the car at seven, which would take me to Heathrow for the flight to Gothenburg. I reasoned that it was all going to be very difficult but that I could minimise the damage by going to bed early and setting my alarm for 2.45. Good plan. Went to bed at 9.30 and lay awake until around 1 when Sophie began to cry with an upset tummy. Sue got up and took her downstairs for half an hour or so. I lay there wondering if she was okay, still unable to relax. Sue eventually came back to bed and the house became quiet again for almost five minutes, before Niall appeared at the bedroom door. I've had a bad dream, he said, and climbed into the bed next to me. 
I want to go in the middle. I hauled him across my body into the space between Sue and me and lay awake for another hour listening to him sleeping and feeling him flailing around. By two-ish, I'd had enough and I picked him up and carried him back to his bedroom where he returned to bed and slept peacefully. I went back to bed and after a few more minutes, Sophie began to whimper quietly. She was obviously still in pain. I could hear her moving about, and when I hauled myself back out of bed, I found her sitting on the floor next to her bedroom door, crying quietly to herself. I took her downstairs and into the lounge, where she loaded a video to take her mind off her pain. I went to my room and read a couple of emails, before returning to watch Blackadder with her. By 245 She was nodding off, so I sent her back upstairs to try and sleep while I dialed the phone for the internet chat. It got off to a slow start while Melinda, somewhere in Grand Rapids, Michigan, wrestled with the technical ramifications of getting the software up and running. We were away and I was fielding questions by 3.15. It all went okay, but it's surprising how quickly the time passes when you're doing this sort of thing and before I knew it, we were finishing up at 5am. I fell back into bed immediately, and was finally asleep for one hour when my alarm clock roused me at six for the departure to Heathrow and to Sweden. The management had arranged a car to take me to the airport at seven. I had been most specific in giving details of my address to the car company. They always get lost. Sure enough, at 7am, the phone rang with a driver on the other end saying he was just outside Wargrave and couldn't find my house. I'm not surprised. He was about 40 miles away. I couldn't believe it. It was to take him another 40 minutes to get to me. 40 minutes I could have spent in bed, thereby doubling my sleep for the night. He arrived at around 8.45 and promptly drove to Heathrow at speeds in excess of 120 miles an hour while I cowered in the back of the car, observing the fact that in an old Sierra on wet roads there was more than a fighting chance that we would shortly both be dead. Luckily, it wasn't to be and he deposited me, exhausted and in shock, at Terminal 1 at 8.15. I found the check-in desk where Ian was having some trouble with the excess baggage. We are carrying the bare essentials, guitars and a rack full of samplers, but it was all weighing in at 300 plus kilos. Excess baggage is one of those things where you're totally at the mercy of the check-in clerk. Nine times out of ten they let you off. But today we had a job's worth and she was determined to weigh everything and presented us with a bill for £600. If that happens on the way back, we're looking at 1200 that isn't in the budget. Oh well. When we eventually got it all sorted out and made our way to the plane, it was only half full. The flight was uneventful. I sprawled across a window seat and managed to sleep for ten minutes, waking up feeling considerably better for the power nap. At Gothenburg Airport, we were met by a chap with a minibus, who took us first to the gig, a theatre-stroke club in the city centre, to drop off the equipment, and then on to the hotel. For some reason, they'd put us in the Scandic, which was a fifteen-minute drive out of town on an industrial estate. 
This meant we had no chance of a walk round the town, which had looked quite interesting through the bus window. The weather was cold and grey and the record company guy was arriving in 30 minutes to start the interview schedule which would continue to deprive me of sleep for the rest of the day. I checked into room 513 and relaxed for 20 minutes. I could really have done with a hot bath, but there was only a shower. I returned to the hotel lobby to start the interview schedule. The promoter had supplied the wrong keyboards, so Mark had gone down to the gig to try and sort out the technology. I would be doing the interviews alone. There was much standing about while the record company rep tried and failed to organise a cab to a radio station. You could almost hear his one brain cell creaking under the strain of this simple task. Nobody seemed to know who was responsible for the hotel being out of town. Nobody seemed to know who had organised the trip, or why. I was tired out, so not in a very forgiving frame of mind. I worked my way through the interviews, and the meet and greet of a posse of Norwegians who had come over on a mission. One of them works for BMG Records in Norway, but is such a fan he intends to promote our record there anyway. Another one is an independent promotions guy who feels the same. Yet another is a marketing manager at Procter & Gamble in Oslo and says he can print posters. Curiouser and curiouser. This lot turned out to be none other than the band Gaspacho. At five o'clock we returned to the venue to soundcheck. The drive took us along the waterfront where we could see large ferries on the docks and an ocean-going dry dock where a ship was being overhauled. This was the first foreign city I ever came to when I was about 21. I was playing in the band in the disco on the tour Scandinavia, a cruise ship. It docked here before sailing on to Amsterdam. I threw snowballs at my mates on the docks here, not knowing that I was soon to be attacked by one of them and would very nearly bleed to death out in the open sea during the voyage. I was stitched back together on the ship by a Swedish naval officer with a Danish sailor assisting. It's all a distant memory now. I stared at the docks, waiting for some trigger that would take me back and dig some vivid recollection of those days as we rattled our way towards soundcheck. It never happened. Technically, soundcheck was straightforward, although the empty room sounded very harsh. There were only a small number of people hanging around outside, so I was beginning to feel nervous that no one knew the gig was happening. Soundcheck dragged on until seven o'clock when I managed to find a phone to call Tom Gagliardi, a radio DJ in America, for a previously scheduled interview. After that, Steve, Pete and I drove to Gothenburg's only rock radio station to be interviewed and perform a couple of acoustic songs, The Answering Machine and Now She'll Never Know. We returned to the hotel by nine o'clock and I had a heavenly 30 minutes off before leaving for the show at 9.30. On the way back to the venue, I quizzed Peter, the record company rep, a little more about why we were here and whose idea the whole thing was. It was all beginning to feel like an expensive waste of time. He said there would be journalists at the show and that many people would come. It seemed unlikely to me. I was proved wrong, however, When we got back to the club, I peeked into the hall. 
The 400-capacity room was packed with people cheering and impatiently slow-hand clapping. There was a cheer as someone spotted me entering the balcony area behind the stage, so I scurried away to get changed. Things were looking up. The show was brilliantly received, and I managed to persuade Pete to accompany me in a short acoustic rendition of Estonia for the second and final encore. Naturally, I've always wanted to play this song in Sweden, where the loss of the Estonia ferry is still keenly felt. It was a magical couple of minutes, and a meaningful way to finish what had been a pretty raucous show. Afterwards, we relaxed backstage while the crew loaded the back line, and while Ian waited for a certain Mr Maloney from the promoter, who was to pay us. He never showed up. We all returned to the hotel for a couple of beers. It's amazing how potent alcohol becomes if you haven't had any sleep for a couple of days. I got drunk and staggered about a lot before returning to my room and entering a coma. Sunday, 20th of September, Gothenburg, home. I awoke at 11.30 and... While stark naked, cleaning my teeth, I answered the ringing phone to discover we were supposed to have left already for the airport. Packed and dressed in no time and hightailed back to the airport, where we weren't charged for excess baggage. I bought a Pippi Longstocking doll for Sophie and a stuffed moose for Niall during the 90-minute wait to fly back to Heathrow. Hungover and exhausted, I felt somewhat subdued, like I hadn't been to Sweden at all. Back in England, summer had returned. The sunshine reflected brightly from the jumbo jets, waiting at their terminals like enormous cattle being milked. Eric Nielsen, our American keyboard tech and website designer, was refused entry by immigration, who wanted to put him on the next plane back to Gothenburg. After much discussion, they allowed him into the UK for 24 hours to pack. They're deporting him tomorrow. It's his birthday. Saturday, 14th of November, Cologne Music Hall. Slept well on the bus thanks to a couple of pints of Guinness in the Irish pub last night in Hanover. Woke at 11 to discover, somewhat confusedly, that we were standing still on the autobahn. We left Hanover at 3am and it should only have been a three hour drive. I was to discover that there'd been a big traffic accident around 5am and that we'd been stuck on the motorway ever since. We finally arrived at the live music hall at midday. Fortunately, the truck was already unloaded, so the crew hurried to try to make up the time and have the production up and ready for soundcheck at 4.30. I hung around in catering, drinking coffee and wandering back to the bus to bring in my bags. Around 1pm... I realised my laptop had gone missing. This had a number of dire consequences. My life is in this thing. My numbers, my diary, my lyrics, business stuff, accounts, etc. To make matters worse, Mark is currently using my laptop for all the keyboard programme changes in the show and he doesn't have a current safety copy. My worst fears were that I had left the computer in the street last night while stopping to write autographs for fans hanging about. A couple of nervous hours ensued while Johnny Allen, our tour manager, tried to contact the Hanover gig and see if they had it. 
Meanwhile, Mark and I tried to form contingency plans to get around doing the show without it. Eventually, the good news came through that the cleaners had found it and that it was still in Hanover, but safe. Johnny arranged for it to come to Cologne on a train and it was due in at 6.50 this afternoon. Deep joy and what a relief. Somehow, I'd got it into my head that the gig was in the centre of Cologne, so I decided I'd go for a walk and go shopping. I'd run out of socks and underwear. The weather was dreadful, raining and grey. I walked round the back and realised we were in the middle of some kind of industrial area and a rain-soaked five-mile walk into town wasn't really an option, so I returned to the gig to await the return of the runner, who would give me a lift into the town centre. The shops in Cologne close at four o'clock on a Saturday and he didn't turn up until three. We drove into town and after getting stuck in thick traffic he finally dropped me off at 3.45 so it was all a bit of a rush. I went to a currency exchange desk in the Hauptbahnhof railway station and when I tried to buy some marks with my visa card I was asked for ID. I didn't have any. I was asked for a passport, then a driving licence, then, as a last resort, a bicycle licence. We don't need a licence for a bicycle in England. Do you need a licence for a bicycle here in Germany, I said. No, said the old lady behind the counter. By now, we were well into surrealism, so I ran with it and asked her if Beethoven had ever called in to change up some marks and had been able to hear her through the glass. This seemed to do the trick. She relented and gave me some money. Couldn't find socks apart from black and grey wool things. I remember thinking I'd give my right arm for a Marks and Sparks as I wandered around the busy shopping street adjacent to the cathedral. I tried my luck in one of the department stores but could only find women's underwear and after a couple of weeks on the road I found this deeply psychologically unsettling so I made my way back out into the street and in desperation bought two pairs of expensive Hugo Boss briefs in an upmarket men's boutique. I continued in vain on the quest for socks until 3.47 when I turned a corner to see Marks and Spencers standing before me as though it had been beamed down from the sky. Men's socks were on the third floor, where I jumped off the escalator at exactly four o'clock to be told that the cash registers were closed and the store also. These Germans never bend the rules, even if it means not taking the cash out of your extended hand. I returned back towards the Hauptbahnhof, stopping to wander around an antiques auction house full of sculpture, furniture and Tiffany lamps. I took a shine to a beautiful standard lamp with a cascading stained glass Tiffany shade. I could imagine it at home in Sue's Indonesian lounge. However, I have a bit of a history of buying overpriced objects of desire when out on the road and I didn't want to spend money we haven't got on my now legendary weakness for light fittings. Shame, though. I rendezvoused back at the hotel day room at 4.30, where the runner had arranged to take Ian and I back to the gig. Dined on goulash ugh, in catering and sound-checked, chatting to staff of the Dutch, French, German and English fan clubs, along with Anne-Sophie Prévost, who is making a short piece about us for French TV.
After soundcheck, I went to bed on the bus for 40 minutes before returning to try my luck in the interesting gig shower. Not stone cold, but not far off. Decided, on balance, to go without underwear and socks for a couple of days in order not to run out before the end of the tour. Regular showers are a more hygienic option anyway. You just have to be extra careful with your fly zip. The show was well received and the sound on stage was good. There was a strict curfew at 10.30. The club became a disco later. Unfortunately, this encroached on the encores and we had to cancel encore too. I made a speech about money, greed, the state of modern capitalism, etc. and realised halfway through that I was in the process of inciting a riot so I asked the people to do us a favour and leave peacefully. I'm sure we were being heftily charged for hire of the venue, not to mention the obvious bar profits, so it seems unnecessary to me to throw everyone out and sell the hall again, as though they weren't already making enough money. I wrote a stiff note in the guest book. Disco is the scourge of the 20th century, etc. I never mentioned all the nights I'd leapt around in Camden Palace in the 80s. Mingled a little after the show with record company reps, someone bought me one of those little boxes that bears like a sheep when you turn it upside down. Thanked him very much and asked him whether they could get me one of those boxes that laughs. I've always wanted a laugh box. Climbed aboard the bus and probably had a beer before vanishing to my bunk, although to be honest I can't remember. Tomorrow, a day off in the lovely Hotel New York, Rotterdam. Hooray. I'm holding my breath. And we're back. <laughs> yeah. And uh, maybe you shouldn't hold your breath that long uh, when there's phlegm around. It's a bit of a... Uh, <coughs> <laughs> a throaty... A thr- a I've got a bit throaty. of a, a motley wheeze going on. A motley yeah. wheeze. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's a good name for a band. Um, double drag. Uh, th- my my reaction to those two um, pieces when I read them this morning because I have actually read them actually I'm I'm, I'm prepared this week. Um, Sweden seemed to be all about a the fact you'd had no sleep and b kind of well I don't even really know why I'm here. <laughs> I don't think any of us knew. <laughs> uh, apart from what what turned out to be a great gig at the end. Yeah. It was um, and Germany just seemed to be all about trying to buy pants and socks. <laughs> So, yeah, well, you know. We appear to be heading a little bit mundane. Um, well, you know, when you're a rock star, like apparently I am, uh, yes. the mundane is, is you know, is a, a stellar stimulus because right. you're so used to everything being really crazy and great that a bit of mundane is just what you're, you know, four hours looking for socks. I mean, I'm taking the piss, but I, I, it's it's actually true. Some of my some of my happiest moments have been sock related. There's a there's a shop in Paris uh, called Bexley's um, in one of the in one of the major avenues there, and I always go there like a homing pigeon whenever I'm in Paris and I, and buy socks. Um, I've stopped buying underwear now. 
you know, having stopped wearing underwear, seems a shame to buy it. Yes. Um, but I think I, I think underwear's coming towards me, Anthony. I really do. You do. think? I, yeah, I think, I think I might be reaching an age where I have to review underwear. Right, okay. Is there a reason for this, and can you say it out loud? <laughs> yes and no. Excellent. I thought that was going to be <laughs> thought that was going to be the answer. As <laughs> you see, this is the difference between you and Dicky Bird because I don't think there's anything in his autobiography about underwear buying. No, I, I think I think most people are a little more guarded with their private life than I am. I think yeah, I've, and and. <laughs> quite rightly so. Quite rightly so. Yes, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you, When we were talking before we started, you uh, said there was something about Sweden you're not putting in the diary. Oh, there was. I think it was that trip um, because I'm, cause I was reading that as well. Uh, the, the, well, I've read it now, haven't I? But what, what I, I might... Well, oh, it's very hard to talk about these, these things when... You know, because by now I've read the diary, haven't I? And so we're talking about what I've just read. Yes. So I can't say, oh, I think I might actually say that when I read the diary because if I because I will have said it. Well, let's. But let basically, you carry, you carry on, and I'll tell you. I'll see if I can hint. No, what it was was that um, there were reading the bit about all the excess baggage charges, mm-hmm. Heathrow, and how much they charged us. To put or put the flight cases and the Kurzweil and all the nonsense on, uh, cause, you know, because it's quite heavy and, and hefty, um, and how much they charge us, and and how much of those charges seem to be at the whim of whoever checks you in. Mm-hmm. I did note when we came back from Sweden, we got we put it all on the plane, and they didn't charge us a bean. So whoever checked us in at Sweden just went, it's all right. Stick it on. Right. So it's that's what I hadn't mentioned about that journey. Because I remember, I remember Ian saying, well, bugger me, they've not charged us anything at all. You know, and, and they charged the best part of two grand to put it on the plane coming. So it's, it's all about the whim and the, the, the mood that the check-in clerk is in when you rock up. Right, which is interesting because if you go to Diary Sunday the 20th of September... Hmm. It does say, packed and dressed in no time and hightailed back to the airport where we weren't charged for excess baggage. Where we weren't charged? Yes. Oh, maybe I'm confusing the two then. So you weren't charged. Quite- no, you were charged on the way out. You just weren't charged on the way back. So the thing you've just told us that wasn't in the diary wasn't in the diary. But that's fine. <laughs> um, I just thought... Oh, no, it's all right then. I just thought I'd point it out. What you did put, which I thought you might mention, was a bit more oh. about Eric Nielsen, who got deported. He did. He did because he'd. What had happened was we'd sort of. Uh, what's the word? We'd co-opted him um, after an American tour, mm. and he'd come. He'd come to work for us in England, but of course, there's a limit to how long you can stay, and they don't tend to send the police round to throw you out. Um, but what does happen is if you then leave the country and try and get back in, then all the flags are up against your name as having already overstayed. And that's what happened to him. So he'd been he'd been in England too long, you know, more than he was allowed to be on a visa. Um he'd been in he'd he'd been in the UK too long 
And so when he went to Sweden, that was no problem. But when he came back into the uh, to cross the UK border at Heathrow when we came back, they nobbled him and they detained him. And they, in the end, after a bit of argy-bargy, they said he could go home, but only to pack. So they let him go home to Oxford to pack a bag and they deported him the next day. And it was his birthday. <laughs> Happy bloody birthday, oh. Eric Neal. Yeah, that must have been a killer. And they only deported him to Chicago as well because that was cheaper. And he doesn't live in Chicago. He lives in Cleveland. And so they flew him to Chicago. Uh, he got off the plane and said, well, what about Cleveland? And they said, buy yourself a ticket, son. Yeah, not our problem anymore. Yeah. So that was a tough birthday, mm. poor sod. Mm. But obviously he came back relatively quickly then. That wasn't the end of Eric, was it? No, he came back and we, we married him off. Mm, that's right. That's right. <laughs> of course, that's. I'm only joking if you're listening yes. from the government. Um, but, I mean, to, to, to be fair, the, uh, the lady that you got married to, he is still with mm. to this day. And so they did fall very much in love. Um, and I think she, I th what's her name, Eric and uh, Rachel, I think she's called Rachel. It's been a while. She's lovely. And uh, I think they were, I think they met in a pub and were sort of drinking mates in Oxford. And he said, you, you wouldn't do me a favour and marry me, would you? So I stay in England. <laughs> And she was obviously a very broad-minded girl because she said, yeah, what the heck? And uh, I went to their wedding um, in the registry office. You know, I was the only member of the band who turned up, uh, which was a bit shoddy considering the, the main purpose of that marriage was so he could carry on working for it. But I went and um, he married her and it was like an arranged marriage, I guess, because they I think they fell very much in love and, and they're, they're still together to this day. So it just shows that arranged marriages can, can last longer than the, uh, the lovey-dovey ones sometimes. It was, it was green card all over again, wasn't it? Oh, is that what happened in that movie? I'm assuming so. Yeah. I'm assuming, I'm assuming I've, so. Oh, I've not seen it. Right, right. But that's the, that's the, that's the American term, isn't it? Yes. It's a green card marriage, isn't it? Oh, a green card marriage, yes. I thought yes. you were referring to a movie of the story, you know, of the arranged marriage and then they fall in love. It sounds yeah, well, like no, that's, a that's what it script. is. That's what oh, it is. Okay. There is a movie like that. Right. Uh, I think. Don't tell me who's in it and it's a long time ago. I want to say, I want to say, no, it can't be. I want to say it was it was Gerard Depardieu, but it can't be. That oh, yeah, wrong. with the nose. With the nose. Well, I mean, I mean... <laughs> Having a nose in the same way that we all have noses, but <laughs> that's him. <laughs> that's Just above the one. mouth, in the middle. That, that's that's the one. <laughs> Two holes, I, and it, it won't be him. It was him. It was him. It was Cheryl uh, Depardieu. Yes, uh, Peter Weir produced it. It's a romantic comedy. It's Gerard Depardieu and it's Andy McDowell. Oh, well, there, there we are. There we are. Uh, um, American woman who enters into a marriage of convenience with a Frenchman so he can obtain a green card and remain in the US. And then I'm a th I think as it goes down the line, they fall in love. Yeah, yeah. Well, it can happen. So it was it was Eric and Rachel. It think. was all over again. All over again. Lovely. What a nice way to end. Hmm. 
Nice way to end 89. Are we, um, are we trying to do the thing that we talked about doing for 90? Of course. What no, was it? Do, um, I don't know if I should say it out loud no. in case it doesn't happen. Oh, no, no. Let, let, me, let me apply myself to right. that. I'll get okay. on it. Right, okay. Next, next, yes, next week. So, basically, in terms of audience participation from this week's episode, we need release the release hashtag to go absolutely mental everywhere. And Mr. H uh, will take kindly and fondly of any underwear uh, catalogues you want to send him. Because <laughs> he's thinking of getting back into pants. They'd better be for blokes, I suppose. <laughs> Anything in, in sort of roofing felt will be, will be, part, will be fine. Yes. The hair shirt. Be hard on yourself. <laughs> Right. Leave that there. Should we, should we leave that there? Right, okay. Uh, exit stage left and you're going to croon. Here comes a croon. Here comes a croon. <laughs> yes. On the subject of Peter Jackson, here we go. The long-haired winding road Then bleeds to your door Will never disappear I've seen that road before It always leads me here Leads me to your door the wild and windy night That the rain washed away Has left a pool of tears Crying for the day Don't leave me standing here Let me know the way Many times I've been alone And many times I've cried Anywhere you'll never know Too many ways I've tried but still they lead me back To the long winding roads You left me waiting here A long, long time ago
Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production. <laughs>